This is CPX 105, the fourth and fifth precepts of the Catholic Church. This is the Catechism of Pope St. Pius X, CPX, page 136 to 137. Question and answer, numbers 35 to 39. God give you his peace, and omni patris et spiritu sancti, amen. Heavenly King, Consoler Spirit, Spirit of Truth, who art present everywhere and filling all things, treasure of all good and source of all life, come dwell in us, cleanse us and save us, you who are all good, amen. In nomi patris fidi, spiritus sancti, amen. The fourth precept of the church, number 35. How are we to observe the fourth precept? To contribute to due support of the church. Answer, the fourth precept is satisfied by paying the dues or making the offerings which have been established in recognition of God's supreme dominion over all things and as a means of providing for the becoming support of his ministers. Number 36. How are these dues and offerings to be paid? Answer, they are to be paid in the way and manner customary in the place in which we live. The fifth precept, number 37, what is the church forbid in the fifth precept not to solemnize marriage at forbidden times? Answer, the fifth precept of the church does not forbid the celebration of the sacrament of marriage, but only the nuptial solemnities from the first Sunday of Advent until the Epiphany and from the last day of Lent until Low Sunday. Number 38, what are the nuptial solemnities which are forbidden? Answer, the nuptial solemnities forbidden by this precept are the celebration of the nuptial mass, the nuptial benediction, and marriage festivities on a large scale. Number 39, why are the marriage festivities on a large scale out of place in Advent and Lent? Answer, pompous displays are out of place in Advent and Lent because these seasons are specially consecrated to penance and prayer. Thus are the words of the Holy Pope. Okay, so those last two might be kind of surprising for you. You might be surprised to know that before Vatican II, you could not have weddings in Advent and Lent. However, you also might have noticed something surprising there. You could have quiet marriages. Now, who in the West, in the Western churches, remember we talked about Eastern churches and Western churches. I mentioned before that in the Eastern churches, it is the priest witnessing the marriage that effects the sacramental bond of marriage. But in the West, 99% of you are Western Catholics. That means you either go to the Roman Novus Ordo or the Roman traditional Latin Mass. For most of you, if you got married, you affected the bond with the priest just as the witness. Now, the Council of Trent was really the first time I'm aware of in history that made it absolutely binding to have a priest there. But even before Trent, it was customary to have a priest at your wedding. However, both before and after Trent, as well as before Vatican II and after Vatican II, it is the couple that affects the marriage. And then God, as I put in a recent blog post, galvanizes that bond as a supernatural bond if it's two baptized people getting married. Okay, this brings us back to the question, why in the world can you have a quiet marriage, but not a loud marriage, so to speak? Well, again, Advent and Lent is not the time for festivities, but there are times in church history when there are emergencies either in the family life or emergencies due to wartime and other, other things if someone's going off to war, where you are allowed to effect that bond of marriage at the altar, it's ratified at the altar, and then it is consummated that night. You might remember that scene I've talked about in Braveheart before, before the English arrive in the Scottish place. And remember, this is the 12th century, when both the English and the Scots were Catholic, makes it that much worse what the English were doing in that movie at least. And so 12th century Scotland was still very Catholic, 
And that's why they go out to the forest, they get married, and you see the priest is still there, even though this is before Trent, again, because it's customary. But as you can imagine in that scene in Braveheart, there's going to be no huge wedding celebration. Not because it was necessarily an Advent or Lent, but because it was a wartime emergency. So all this is to say, a little bit long-winded, uh, you can probably get permission, even at a traditional Latin mass parish, to get married in Advent or Lent, but it's not appropriate to have a huge party because those are penitential seasons. Oh, and two things I forgot to mention there. You know, the Council of Trent was in the 16th century, and even though I said it's mandatory at Trent and onwards to have the priest there, both before and after Trent, in an emergency, a couple, a man and a woman who are not married, who have full and free consent, can still, in an emergency, affect that bond of marriage, even if there's not a priest there. So even after Trent, I did say it made it mandatory, even after Trent, let's say that uh, a young couple gets uh, washed ashore to a desert island off of some uh, boat wreck, and maybe a 20-year-old couple is the only people that survives, and they're stuck on a desert island, can those two affect the bond of marriage even though there's no priest on that, say, tropical island? Yes, they just have to make sure when they get back to mainland, if that happens, they don't get an annulment. This still has to be for life, even though they're in a weird situation on that desert island. They can still affect that bond of marriage by ratifying it, making vows to each other, consummating the marriage on that island. And then if God blesses them with kids, this has been pointed out by other people besides me, the amazing thing is that lay couple can even baptize that baby in those tropical waters. So how amazing is that? That if this couple lives in sanctifying grace and fulfills their marriage vows, a 20-year-old couple washed up on a desert island can affect the two main sacraments to get their family to heaven. Marriage, because in an emergency you do not need the priest there. Again, we said in the West, it is the couple that affects the bond and the priest only witnesses it. And then on that tropical island, they can baptize their babies in that water. And that will, if they keep those kids educated, and in grace, since there's no priest for confession, can get their whole family to heaven. So God has really wired the Catholic Church so perfectly uh, for which sacraments are necessary for salvation. Also, it's important to note that Pope St. Pius X would be shocked and horrified to hear that there would be Catholic parishes within 100 years of his death that prohibited baptism in Lent and in Advent. That is preposterous and insane. As I've said before, if you ever find a parish priest who will not allow babies to be baptized in his parish in Lent, run the other direction, leave his parish. Because this is a totally modern myth that endangers your family's salvation. Water baptism is generally necessary for salvation, which is why in the tradition of the church, most saints were baptized within 24 hours of their birth, unless they were early pagan converts, Throughout the Middle Ages, most of the Middle Aged saints were baptized within 24 hours of their birth. And then we have the Council of Carthage, which is basically an infallible council, saying that it is absolutely mandatory, I think families are put under mortal sin, to wait more than seven days to baptize your baby. So this is a council of the church, the Council of Carthage, makes it mandatory for your baby to be baptized within a week of birth, and then, of course, we know from common sense and probably other documents, if your baby's born in any distress at all, you really should baptize that baby yourself immediately. And that's one reason why I made this recent video on my TCE, How to Baptize in an Emergency. So even though today's CPX might have been surprising to hear that marriages are prohibited in Lent, 
even though I support that prohibition of marriages in Lent, or at least the solemn celebrations of that, never ever should baptism be delayed, especially for a newborn and especially for any adult who is in danger. Now, that was pretty straightforward, and because we discussed Pope St. Pius X on frequent communion last time, if you want to keep listening, I decided to read to you today Pope St. Pius X's criteria on receiving Holy Communion frequently. Now, as I proceed and read this, I know this is going to sound rigorous to some of you, but keep in mind what I'm going to read you is very liberal for the beginning of the 20th century. And by liberal, I mean generous. Compared to, if not the popes, at least of the 19th century, Pope St. Pius X gives very generous criteria on determining if you should receive Holy Communion compared to probably most of the past thousand years before him of popes and saints. Maybe keep that in mind that Pope St. Pius X's norms that I'm about to read you could still be excellent norms for us today, And at least as you listen to what I'm going to read you, you should notice there is still great value in attending daily Mass, even if you can't receive Holy Communion every day. I know people are going to look like you, like you just committed some capital crime if you attend Mass more frequently than you receive Holy Communion, but that's why I want to show you how the Holy Ghost has led the Church for most of her time, just so you can see how things have been really shaken up into different directions in the past 60 years. These are the dispositions for frequent and daily communion from a decree approved by Pope St. Pius X on the 20th of December, 1905. Number one, frequent and daily communion as a thing most earnestly desired by Christ our Lord and by the Catholic Church should be open to all the faithful of whatever rank and condition of life so that no one who is in the state of grace and who approaches the holy table with a right and devout intention can lawfully be hindered therefrom. Number two, a right intention consists in this, that he who approaches the holy table should do so not out of routine or vainglory or human respect, but for the purpose of pleasing God, or being more closely united with him by charity, and of seeking this divine remedy for his weaknesses and defects. Number three, although it is more expedient that those who communicate frequently or daily should be free from venial sins, especially from such as are fully deliberate, and from any affection thereto. Nevertheless, it is sufficient that they be free from mortal sin, with the purpose of never sinning mortally in future, and if they have this sincere purpose, it is impossible but that daily communicants should gradually emancipate themselves from even venial sins, and from all affection thereto. Number four. But whereas the sacraments of the new law, though they take effect ex opere operato, nevertheless produce a greater effect in proportion as the dispositions of the recipient are better. Therefore, care is to be taken that Holy Communion be preceded by serious preparation and followed by a suitable thanksgiving according to each one's strength, circumstances, and duties. Number five. That the practice of frequent and daily communion may be carried out with greater prudence and more abundant merit, the confessor's advice should be asked. Confessors, however, are to be careful not to dissuade anyone from frequent and daily communion provided that he is in a state of grace and approaches with a right intention. Number six, but since it is plain that by the frequent or daily reception of the Holy Eucharist, Union with Christ is fostered, the spiritual life more abundantly sustained, the soul more richly endowed with virtues, 
and an even surer pledge of everlasting happiness bestowed on the recipient. Therefore, parish priests, confessors, and preachers, in accordance with the approved teaching of the Roman Catechism, are frequently, and with great zeal, to exhort the faithful to this devout and salutary practice. Number seven, frequent and daily communion is to be promoted, especially in religious orders and congregations of all kinds, with regard to which, however, the, dec the decree quemad modem issued on the 17th of December, 1890, by the Sacred Congregation of Bishops and Regulars is to remain in force. It is also to be promoted especially in ecclesiastical seminaries, where students are preparing for the service at the altar, as also in all Christian establishments of whatever kind for the training of youth. In the case of religious institutes, whether of solemn or simple vows, in whose rules or constitutions or calendars communion is assigned to certain fixed days, such regulations are to be regarded as directive and not perceptive. In such cases, the appointed number of communions should be regarded as a minimum and not as setting a limit to the devotion of the religious. Therefore, freedom of access to the Eucharistic table, whether more frequently or daily, must always be allowed them, according to the principles above laid down in this decree. And in order that all religious of both sexes may clearly understand the provisions of the decree, the superior of each house is to see that it is read in community in the vernacular every year within the octave of the Feast of Corpus Christi. Number nine. Finally, after the publication of this decree, all ecclesiastical writers are to cease from contentious controversies concerning the dispos dispositions requisite for frequent and daily communion. Thus again are the words of the Holy Pope. Okay, and then just a reminder to you out there, we are coming to the end of CPX, Catechism of Pope St. Pius X, and then we are going to pick up the bigger catechism called the Roman Catechism, also the Catechism of Trent that I'm showing on the picture on the camera right now. So make sure to get the Kindle version, or if you can afford the hardback, go ahead and get that off of Amazon. We probably will be starting that in Lent or in Paschal Tide. Please say an Our Father for me at Benedictio Dei Patentis, Patris, Sefiri, Spiritus Santi, Descendit Super Vos, et Maniat Semper. Amen. <laughs>